Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, breaking news from the Detroit News. Apparent recordings of Donald Trump himself in 2020 allegedly pressuring two election officials in Michigan not to sign the certification of Joe Biden's victory. Plus, the special counsel strikes back, urging the Supreme Court to immediately consider Trump's immunity claims as his former lawyer Rudy Giuliani files for bankruptcy hours after being ordered to pay two election workers for costly lies he told for Trump. Will he pay up? Giuliani's attorneys are here. And even more accusations of plagiarism against Harvard's embattled president. The two student journalists who broke the story join us this hour. Caitlin Collins is off tonight. I'm Brianna Keeler, and this is The Source. And we begin with that breaking news. There is brand new reporting on yet another recording of a phone call allegedly made by Donald Trump in 2020 pressuring local election officials. This time in Michigan on November 17, 2020, two weeks after he had lost the presidential election in that state by more than 100,000 votes. CNN has not heard the recording of this phone call, but the Detroit News says it has. And it reports then-President Trump personally pressured two Republican members of the Wayne County Board of Canvassers not to sign the certification of the election and allegedly told them they'd look, quote, terrible if they did. CNN spoke with one of the journalists who says he listened to audio of this conversation a short while ago. What I heard listening to the audio of this conversation was the then president of the United States encouraging, pressuring, contending, arguing in favor of these two Republican county canvassers not signing the certification of the 2020 election for Wayne County. A Trump campaign spokesperson has responded to the story saying, quote, all of President Trump's actions were taken in furtherance of his duty as president of the United States to faithfully take care of the laws and ensure election integrity, including investigating the rigged and stolen 2020 presidential election. And we should note, of course, that the election was not stolen, nor was it rigged. Also reportedly on this call was RNC Chairwoman Ronna uh, McDaniel, who also allegedly told those officials not to sign the certification and, quote, we will get you attorneys. McDaniel's response tonight, quote, what I said publicly and repeatedly at the time as referenced in my letter on November 21st, 2020, is that there was ample evidence that warranted an audit. And I'm joined now by Maggie Haberman, senior political correspondent for The New York Times and CNN political analyst. Uh, Maggie, thanks for being with us on this. Uh, the then president on the phone with county canvassers, take us back to his mindset at this point in November 2020 that would prompt this extraordinary overture. Well, look, there were a couple of days early on after Election Day when Trump seemed to be aware that he had lost, according to multiple people. And then 
short time after that, he dug in on the idea that he had not lost, that in fact he was going to make sure that the transfer of power didn't take place. And, and this is part of that effort. You know, he started telling people, and I reported this previously, uh, that he wasn't going to leave. Why would you leave if you lost an election? And so it's not surprising, uh, again, to hear, it, it is surprising that the President of the United States was doing this. It is not surprising that this particular President was doing it because we know that he has made, uh, he made other efforts uh, to try to plead with state officials, obviously, in Georgia is the most well-known case. But this adds to evidence, Brianna, this adds to, and I've not heard this tape, to be clear, but if it is as described, this would add to the, the evidence amassed suggesting that Trump was of a certain mindset, that he had been told repeatedly that he had lost, and yet he was intent on making sure the election was not certified in Joe Biden's favor. So to you, this fits into the category with the Raffensperger phone call and the other phone calls that we know of. Again, without having heard the tape, based on the description of it, absolutely. We don't know a number of things, including whether Jack Smith, the special counsel, uh, whether he his team has this information. If they don't have it already, I imagine they'll have it pretty soon. Um, but but it is it is more of a piece of what we have heard about his behavior. He has been indicted already, so I don't think that this dramatically changes the picture, at least in terms of the legal problems that he's facing, but it certainly could add to the evidence of the case presented against him. What do you think about, we hear, uh, or not we hear, we hear from the description of this, Trump and McDaniel reportedly offering these canvassers legal protection? Well, I think that this is not entirely inconsistent with some of what Ronna McDaniel was doing at the time. Remember, she is from Michigan. I think that it sounds a little different, again, not having heard this tape, but the description sounds a little different. It sounds as if some, someone is being encouraged to do something. Uh, we don't know within what bounds. We don't know what language was used, but offering to get someone a lawyer uh, again, depending on what the dynamics are and, and what specifically they were being asked not to do, that could be used to argue that Trump was aware that he was asking people to take steps that could be challenged legally. And, and certainly, and I recognize, of course, you have not, we have not actually heard this tape ourselves. Right. What is it, I, yeah. Correct. What, is it, what does it say to you um, that the head of the RNC, according to this, was going along with having the president in touch with local officials. Well, look, I think that we've seen Ronna McDaniel pop up in various places in the course of investigations related to the lead up to January 6, 2021, and the attack on the Capitol by a pro-Trump mob. Uh, Michigan, again, is her state. I'm not entirely surprised. He was the party. And so I, that part doesn't surprise me, especially the fact that Trump would make such a call is not especially surprising given what we know of other phone calls that he has made campaigns that he was exerting, not just in Georgia, but on his own vice president. But again, this just adds to the pile. Yeah, certainly does. Um, Maggie, thank you so much for being with us. Obviously, some very interesting new reporting we're taking a look at here, Maggie Haberman. And joining us now with more on the former president's legal troubles is the founder of the 14th Amendment Center for Law and Democracy, Sherilyn Eiffel. She is also the former president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Uh, Sherilyn, thanks for taking the time tonight. Uh, we mentioned this Colorado case uh, where Colorado Supreme Court ruled that Trump is disqualified from the primary ballot because of the insurrection, his role in it, and what the 14th Amendment says about that. You've written extensively about state and federal courts shying away from taking on 14th Amendment cases like this one. Why do they shy away from it? 
Well, I will say, uh, and thank you so much, Brianna, there's no case quite like this one because we have never in the history of this country had a president who participated in insurrection or rebellion. But uh, it is true that the 14th Amendment is a very clear and I think read on its terms, radical provision of the Constitution that courts try to elide in some way. And um, we saw it with the Colorado District Court, the trial court in this case, who, while she agreed that Trump had participated in insurrection, uh, did not feel comfortable saying he had to be removed from the ballot. I'm gratified that the Colorado Supreme Court uh, showed um, you know, strength and courage and affiliation uh, with the law and with the constitution in making uh, their ruling. The words of section three are very clear. The Reconstruction Congress understood that the spirit of insurrection uh, was dangerous to the future of the country. They also understood that it would not be short-lived uh, and they created a provision to allow us to be able to protect our democracy against insurrectionists seeking to uh, do as they said um, by politics, what they could not do in the field. It sounds, listening to legal experts, the prevailing expectation here is that the court will dispense with this issue, uh, the Supreme Court, one way or, or another, that Colorado Supreme Court will not prevail. Is that your read on this? Well, I think, uh, Brianna, it's hard to, to imagine this court, just given what we've seen over the past few years in which the conservatives on this court have grown increasingly reckless, in my view, uh, and results oriented uh, in a very particular way that I think has uh, caused a lot of concern about the court's legitimacy. We have a very serious conflict issue with uh, Justice Thomas, whose wife worked very intently on precisely the project that you were just talking about that Trump has been involved in, uh, and when you were just talking with Maggie Haberman. Um, and there's a lot of pressure. The reality, Brianna, is that the law here is really clear. So the court will have to, if they seek to avoid this, and we say this very casually, but I wanna pause for a moment and say that's a very serious thing. If we believe that our United States Supreme Court would depart from what the law and the constitution clearly requires them to do in order to reach a result. But if they do that, they will have to do it by other means. They'll have to figure out how to delay uh, hearing the case. They'll have to say it's too close to the election to remove him from the ballot. They'll have to say Congress needs to pass a statute or some other way of getting to that result. It won't be by the uh, findings of the Colorado court. It won't be by the decision of the Colorado Supreme Court. It won't be by the words of section three of the constitution. And your conversation about Donald Trump in Detroit only turns up the heat and makes it harder because he was found to have participated in insurrection against the constitution before we uh, had word about these phone calls. This actually strengthens the case that Jack Smith has against President Trump. It strengthens the case that the NAACP Legal Defense Fund filed under the KKK Act against President Trump. And that suit, as you recall, was against President Trump and the RNC. It charged that they were in the conspiracy together. And so um, this call, which none of us have heard, but at least the reports of it, is not only consistent with um, what happened in Georgia, but consistent with the belief that the RNC was involved and consistent with what else Trump was doing in Detroit and with uh, Michigan officials at that time. You may remember, Brianna, that the uh, leader of the Senate and the Speaker of the House flew to Washington, D.C. and stayed at the Trump Hotel and were, went to visit with Mr. Trump and were, were seen drinking champagne right after the election. He was laying on a pressure campaign 
on Detroit officials. And so we should remember that that was happening around the same time as this phone call. So I don't find it a stretch uh, to believe that the words of this phone call as reported at least are true. And I think it puts additional pressure on this entire situation, including the Section 3 suit, because it's becoming unequivocally clear yeah. uh, that Mr. Trump engaged in these activities. Uh, before we do let you go, uh, Harvard President Claudine Gay is facing intensifying pressure as more plagiarism allegations are emerging. Students, of course, as you're aware, not just at Harvard, at many universities, have long felt in these situations there's a double standard for what they can get away with or what they might get expelled for and what a professor or a university president in this case can get away with. And also you now have a congressional investigation of this alleged plagiarism. What do you think about how this has developed? I think it is incredibly shocking and dangerous. Uh, not that there are plagiarism allegations or that they would be investigated uh, within a, a, an institution of higher learning. The part that I find dangerous is that we would bring to bear the power of the government, our ta tax dollars, uh, the time of the Congress members who somehow are unable to pass a border bill, are unable to fund Ukraine, are unable to uh, fund uh, the, the, the conflict in the Middle East, that all of these folks are bringing to bear the power of the government against a, a person leading a private institution. This is unprecedented. Um, I think it's dangerous. I also think that we cannot avoid recognizing the racial targeting. I have not heard anyone combing through the records of the other uh, individuals and university leaders who testified along with President Gay. It is ugly. Uh, it is clearly a laid out plan by Chris Rufo, who has uh, made clear his plan to have us do exactly what we're doing now, be talking about the qualifications of this president. Uh, he has been pushing this anti-DEI, anti-diversity effort, but I think it's actually targeted at the independence of uh, institutions of higher learning, of, of universities. We've seen it in Florida with Chris, Chris Rufo taking over a new college. And, you know, universities are important civic institutions of democracy. When you challenge the independence of private institutions, you are uh, challenging a core element of our democracy. We should be on alert. If Harvard wants to do its own investigation, it is free to do so. But for members of Congress to decide that they want to meddle into uh, the private affairs of a private institution in order to make score political points and to target a black president is incredibly dangerous. We should be wary of it. We should see what is happening and we should not be sucked into believing that this is an appropriate use of government resources. Sherilyn, thank you for being with us this evening. We do appreciate your time. Thank you, Brianna. And ahead, Rudy Giuliani filing for bankruptcy 24 hours after a federal judge ordered him to quickly cough up $148 million for defaming two former election workers, plus the university massacre that has left more than a dozen dead and a major tourist city in Europe shaken. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Another huge setback for Rudy Giuliani. He is now filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And this comes 24 hours after a federal judge ordered him to quickly cough up $148 million for repeatedly defaming two Georgia election workers. Hard to do that, of course, when you're bankrupt. The judge citing concerns that Giuliani would try to hide his assets. In the bankruptcy filing, Giuliani lists assets worth up to $10 million, but debts between $100 million and $500 million. He also lists nearly a million dollars in unpaid taxes, as well as hundreds of thousands of dollars owed to lawyers and accountants. I'm joined now by two of Rudy Giuliani's attorneys, Gary Fishoff and Heath Berger. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us here. Uh, You list uh, his debt to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss in his bankruptcy filing. Are you going to argue uh, that that's a debt that's dischargeable, meaning that it can be wiped away in bankruptcy proceedings? So whether or not that debt ultimately is dischargeable in bankruptcy will be determined by the uh, bankruptcy court. But at least we will get some time for uh, Mr. Giuliani's uh, other lawyers to pursue an appeal and prevent a liquidation of his assets by this one creditor that's going to get a, a jump ahead of all the other creditors. This way we'll at least have an opportunity for his assets to be supervised and any type of satisfaction to creditors will be done in an orderly and fair manner instead of having one creditor jump ahead of all the others. Okay, Gary, explain how that works. Uh, if you are giving him breathing room here to pursue an appeal of this $148 million judgment, because you're well aware that civil litigation like that is stayed during bankruptcy. So does that mean that you will be filing a motion in bankruptcy court to unstay that, to unstay that specific litigation that involves uh, Ms. Moss and Ms. Freeman? It was the only thing that we would be, that, that, that stayed is actually the actions against Mr. Giuliani, the fact of any actions or the appeal are actually not stayed and will be proceeding forward through the appellate court or the circuit court in the District of Columbia. And that will be taken care of by his other attorneys. If the stay needs to be lifted, we would request the stay be lifted for the sole purpose of filing the appeal. I I don't believe that that is necessarily the case in this case. But back to this issue of when it comes to the dischargeable uh, nature or not in bankruptcy court, intentional willful misconduct, you're well aware, that's not actually something that can be wiped away in bankruptcy. So why are you keeping open this possibility um, like it is, considering you are an expert on bankruptcy law? First off, the issue on whether a debt is dischargeable or not is obviously up to a bankruptcy court to determine, and whether or not a debt is dischargeable will be decided through what's called an adversary proceeding that could be filed in the bankruptcy court. At the moment, 
that's obviously not pending before the court. And if that comes through, we'll have to deal with that as we will deal with all the other creditors that are out there and all the other litigations that are currently proceeding along with the obligation to do an owing to the taxing authorities. Well, Heath, it's pretty clear. I mean, anyone who's been following the Alex Jones case knows that it's not right. I mean, this is a final judgment against Rudy Giuliani. Obviously, he may want to appeal it. But anyone who has been following what has happened in the Sandy Hook process knows that's just pretty standard. Well, if I may answer, um, if you look at the Sandy Hook or the Alex Jones case as a roadmap, they had a judgment of $1.5 billion against Alex Jones. And although the bankruptcy court found that that particular obligation was not dischargeable, the Sandy Hook plaintiffs have now offered to accept $85 million over 10 years, which is a, a, a significant uh, difference between their judgment amount. And I believe Alex Jones' lawyers offered $55 million. So it seems pretty clear that that case is going to settle somewhere between the two numbers. Now, the numbers in uh, Mr. Giuliani's Is Rudy Giuliani's Giuliani case, offering uh, Ms. Moss and Ms. Freeman some amount of money? We're, we're, we're not offering anything at this time, but if you look to that case as guidance, it might indicate ultimately if the court finds that the uh, defamation judgment is not dischargeable, then perhaps this case will take a similar track. It's a little bit premature to say that for sure, though. So, Gary and Heath, you know, when it comes to Mr. Giuliani now disclosing his assets, why did he just do this? He was ordered to do so by Judge Howell. If he was willing to file for bankruptcy, why wasn't he willing to follow a court order to turn over what is the same information? I, I can't answer what occurred prior to today. I can only indicate that today we have filed the Chapter 11 bankruptcy and all of his assets and all of his liabilities will be disclosed to the court. And you know what? Hopefully... At that point, everybody will see what he has and what he doesn't have and kind of work within those boundaries. Are you guys getting paid? We have we have received a retainer prior to filing, as is typical in a bankruptcy case. And you expect to stay current on that retainer? I guess your question really is, if the retainer is exhausted, do we expect to get paid right. additional funds. To be replenished. Um, as bankruptcy attorneys, that's always the plan. It doesn't always pan out exactly as we've planned. So, I mean, I ask, obviously, because as you've listed among his debts, the money that his now former lawyers sued him for for non-payment, are you sure uh, that you won't end up listed as a debt? No, we, we won't end up listed as a debt. Uh, obviously, the bankruptcy has been filed and we will do everything we can, you know, to represent Mr. Giuliani in the best possible fashion. Uh, and, you know, whatever happens at the fees at the end of the day, we're successful. You know, we will deal with it through the bankruptcy systems and with the bankruptcy court. Are you sure that he has listed all of his assets here? Because obviously the judge had some concerns about that. We're going to do everything we can to make sure that all of his assets and all of his liabilities are properly disclosed. Obviously, with Judge Howell's decision yesterday to accelerate the collection process on behalf of the plaintiffs, 
we had to rapidly file this case and we have about 14 days in which to file what's called the schedules and statement of financial affairs, which will have a more detailed disclosure. And we're going to, we believe Mr. Giuliani is prepared to uh, respect the bankruptcy process and understands that true, honest and accurate disclosure of assets and liabilities is a prerequisite to having the bankruptcy court assist him with his reorganization. Are you concerned about your client continuing to repeat the lies that have cost him so much? Well, that, that um, as far as we're concerned in the bankruptcy, uh, we believe that Mr. Giuliani, as we've spoken to and we've discussed, will continue to be truthful and honest in all of his disclosures. You know, what, what happens outside in other cases, that's up to Mr. Giuliani and some of his other attorneys. Keith, Gary, thank you so much. Attorneys for Rudy Giuliani, we thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for having us. We appreciate it. And next, after controversial testimony on anti-Semitism on college campuses, Harvard's president is facing new pressure over allegations of plagiarism. The student reporters who broke these latest claims are here with us. An overwhelming migrant surge at the southern border is forcing President Biden to send top officials to Mexico for talks. Here in recent days, officials say more than 10,000 migrants have unlawfully crossed into the U.S. each day, which is the highest level that we've seen in seven months. CNN spoke to current and former Homeland Security officials who say the situation is nearing a, quote, breaking point. Border officials say more than 26,000 migrants are in CBP custody. That's overcapacity by nearly 10 thousand people. Texas Governor Greg Abbott escalated his border fight on Wednesday by flying 120 migrants to Chicago, which is a city led by Democrats, of course, and that sent officials there scrambling to find shelter for them. Today, the White House slammed it as a dehumanizing political stunt. I'm joined now by Mark Esper, of course, former defense secretary under President Trump. Uh, Sir, you have the governor of Texas here signing this new law in his state this week that takes effect in March, and it makes entering Texas illegally a state crime and allows local law enforcement there the power to arrest migrants and judges the ability to issue removal orders. You've heard what critics are saying. They're saying Texas is stepping on the federal government's purview here enforcing immigration law. What do you think? Well, I'm not a lawyer, so I won't get into all the legal aspects of this, but clearly it's a symptom of what most many on the border see as a crisis. I mean, and the border states are the ones who are bearing the burden of taking care of these uh, people, the migrants. And as you said, uh, cited, Brianna, you're talking 10 to 12,000 persons a day. Uh, the numbers have been the largest ever in U.S. history. Uh, this year alone, 2.1, 2.2 million people have crossed the border. And that's not counting the, the so-called gotaways. And then when you look, dig deeper into those numbers, you see that you have people, you know, thousands from China, hundreds from Iran, from Russia, uh, all types of countries. We have no idea who they are coming in. And many, uh, I think last year's count was 20,000 had some type of criminal record. So there's a lot of concern about what's happening on the border and the states, in this case, uh, the, the Texas governor, not the first time, are trying to take some action to get control of, their, of the border. You think, and I know you're not a lawyer, but do you think it's the right way to go about it? Well, they're trying to drive action from the federal government. And it's uh, at this point, as you said, it's not just uh, Republican governors, but you have uh, big city Democratic uh, mayors, uh, New York, Chicago, for example, who are all saying we need help. I think this is one of the reasons why, particularly we're, we're now less than a year from the 2024 presidential election, 
that you see that President Biden put this on the table as part of his international funding package. He, he asked for 14 billion or so dollars to, to improve border security. And so I think you, you see Democrats are now reacting to the problem on the border as well. Biden officials, as I mentioned, are set to meet with Mexican officials here in the coming days. What do you think their top priorities should be? Look, I think it has to be getting uh, help from the uh, Mexican authorities on their side of the border. You read stories about how busloads of people are being dropped off on the Mexican side. They walk right over to, to the, fencing, the fencing. They cut holes in the fencing. There's no evidence that uh, Mexican police or, or military, for that matter, are trying to stop this curtail it. So I think, first of all, it begins with uh, enforcement on the Mexican side of the border. And then secondly, uh, you know, one of the requirements we're looking at in terms of this new supplemental policy package would be requiring immigrants coming up from the the, the um, uh, from Guatemala, Nicaragua, et cetera, and other places that are coming in from all around the world, having to apply for uh, um, asylum in Mexico first, right? So I think those are just two measures. I think obviously uh, you have to provide humanitarian assistance, uh, both on our side and the Mexican side. I think those are a few of the things that are gonna be put on the table here. So here in Washington, and it sort of never ceases to amaze anyone, I think, that Congress likes to leave town without getting stuff done, but they've gone without dealing with border security, the Ukraine-Israel aid bill. What are your concerns right now for national security? All of the above. I mean, border security is national security. I'm very concerned about the state of play in Ukraine. Uh, they need continued uh, support from us with regard to weapons and equipment and ammunition. Uh, apparently, the White House will, uh, announced one last tranche of uh, arms going to Ukraine at the end of this month. But again, we have to sustain that pipeline. Uh, Israel needs additional support. And part of that package also includes uh, funding and arms for Taiwan. All these are critical national security things. And what it signals is a dysfunction in our government that we can't get basic things like this done. Now, look, I understand it's complicated now because we're talking about policy provisions with regard to the border in this package. And actually, there are immigration changes. Uh, but still, we got to be able to work far more quickly. You know, the, in Beijing, they don't have government shutdowns. They don't have continuing resolutions. They don't have, seem to have these problems. And that's, that's who we're keeping pace with right now, Beijing and Moscow. They do have problems we don't have, though. We have to admit that as well. That's right. Uh, Secretary Esper, thank you very much tonight. We appreciate it. Next, new Thanks, plagiarism Jeff. allegations involving the president of Harvard, already under fire after controversial testimony on the Hill, will be joined by two Harvard students who first broke the latest claims. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Correcting course again. Harvard University President Claudine Gay is asking to make additional corrections to her academic publications as allegations of plagiarism pile up in a House committee announced it's investigating. Gay first came under fire after she and other university presidents failed during a congressional hearing to explicitly say that calling for the genocide of Jews would violate their school codes of conduct. They say it would depend on the circumstances or conduct. 
Gay survived calls for her resignation that followed, but now she is facing scrutiny after alleged instances of plagiarism in her past work came to light. Last week, Gay made corrections to two academic papers. Now she's submitting corrections to the dissertation that she wrote as a PhD student back in the 1990s. In response, a university spokesperson told CNN, the members of the subcommittee and the corporation, which is the university's top governing board, concluded that Gay's inadequate citations, while regrettable, did not constitute research misconduct. Harvard officials did not refer to Gay's actions as plagiarism. The Harvard Crimson, which is the school's student paper, first broke this news about Gay's dissertation, and those student journalists, Tilly Robinson and Neil Shaw, are with us now to talk about that. Uh, Neil, in the course of reporting on this story, You have reviewed the Harvard Committee's findings. Uh, You've looked at pieces of Claudine Gay's work. One of the examples that you've reported on includes Gay's 2001 article where she's describing a study by two researchers. You can see, and we have a graphic of this, when you put up uh, the colors here, you can look at these different colors here. The language that she used in compared, it was nearly identical to the 1990 study. And though she cited these authors in the previous passage, she didn't directly quote them. Um, how, how bad is this, do you think, as you looked into different levels of plagiarism in your reporting? Sure. So, you know, we at the Crimson have reviewed um, the allegations that have been presented by various outlets um, over the last roughly 10 days. Um, the allegations vary in size and severity from you know, shared phrases with citations nearby, but no direct quotations um, to, you know, shared phrases with no citation. So there definitely is a lot of variance in the various allegations. Um, That being said, you know, our our review did find that, um, you know, they do violate or they do appear to violate the stated policy for citations um, and plagiarism that Harvard has on its website. Um, And, you know, the from our understanding, the summary that was presented to us by Harvard, um, the subcommittee of the corporation and the independent panel they appointed seem to have also agreed that they, um, there were instances of inadequate citation. Um, that being said, um, they did say that Gay's um, work did not constitute research misconduct, as you said earlier. Um, to clarify on that, right, research misconduct, according to Harvard's policies, um, to find that you need to show that it's intentional or knowing or reckless, um, and the corporation and the independent panel both said that they, di- they did not find evidence that that was the case. Tilly, does the way that Harvard has reacted to this and how they label uh, what Claudine Gay did, does it hew to what Neil just said about what Harvard's policy is? Yeah, so it's hard for us as students to make full determinations on what's happening for administrators here. What we can say is whether it seems to square with the broader response from the scholarly community. So we at the Crimson have spoken with several of the scholars um, whom Gay allegedly plagiarized, and they've given us some mixed responses. Several of the folks we've spoken to say that they do not believe Gay's writing constitutes plagiarism. 
Um, others have told us that while they do think gay plagiarized their work, they're not especially concerned because although technically plagiarism, the borrowed language appeared to be mostly technical descriptions of methodology or definitions that would be very hard to reword. But finally, it is also true that some academics do find the allegations troubling um, and wish to see further sanctions imposed against gay. So I think that while there's been a mixed response here, I do think that the university has been trying hard to clarify what constitutes inadequate citation, tread a difficult line on whether that constitutes plagiarism, um, and also differentiate that from their policy on research misconduct. Well, Tilly and Neil, I thank you both for being with us and for your reporting, just proving uh, that student journalism, and certainly as we've seen at colleges here in the last year or so, is really making quite a mark. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And yeah. coming up, a massacre overseas, a gunman opening fire at a university in Prague, killing more than a dozen people, injuring more than two dozen. One of the deadliest mass shootings in the Czech Republic in decades. Tonight, we are learning more details about the alleged shooter who killed 14 people and injured 25 in a rare mass shooting in Europe. The suspect, a 24-year-old philosophy student, opened fire at the university that he attended in the busy tourist center of Prague, which is the capital of the Czech Republic. Authorities believe that he died by suicide. Some students locked themselves in classrooms when the shooter began his rampage, and in what has become a truly stunning image out of this, you can see others who were clinging to ledges of campus buildings several stories above the ground. In those moments, that was the safest place for them to be. And in the chaos, Prague residents and tourists ran for their lives across the famous Charles Bridge. Joining me tonight is CNN senior national security analyst and former assistant secretary for the Department of Homeland Security, Juliette Kayam. Uh, you know, what a sad day in Prague here, Juliette, as we watch yeah. this all too familiar site. You had uh, Czech officials getting this tip saying that the suspect intended to come to campus to take his own life. And so they then locked down the building on campus where they knew that he had a lecture that afternoon. But then he went to another building, and that's where he opened fire. Why do you think police didn't lock down the entire school? It, I mean, part of it is, is just they don't have the culture of, that, of sort of gun response that we do here in the United States. I mean, this is a, this is a republic or a country that... that uh, the last mass shooting was in 2019. I mean, you know, so comparatively in terms of what they're expecting, their expectations of their population, the extent to which their population is actually armed. Look, for Europe, for the European Union, uh, the Czech Republic is more permissive than most in allowing for guns. But when you compare it to, say, a country like ours, it's pretty restrictive. I mean, you have to have training. You can have not a single criminal record. You have to have a mental health screening uh, uh, and you have to do uh, like sort of a registration uh, uh, effort. So he was able to get through all of these to have possession of that gun and still, uh, you know, was able to kill what what the university and the, and the city are going to have to examine is what was their response time like? How long did he have a loan? Did they, do they have active shooter protocols that are practiced if they anticipate that this could happen more in the kind of society that they live in? Yeah, this is so reminiscent uh, of the mistakes that were made at Virginia Tech, where you had the shooter yeah. killing two people at a dorm 
and then the university made some assumptions about the threat. They did not shut down the campus. And then hours later, the shooter killed 30 people in an academic yeah. building. It, you mentioned they don't have the culture. Is there a way for that culture to be shared? Is there an avenue for officials in Europe where this is yeah. less common to learn from these mistakes? Yes, it is. I mean, look, I, I hate to say this is something that we might be good at exporting, but there is, there are um, uh, uh, international associations of emergency managers and of chiefs of police in which these lessons are shared. It's just that if you, if your last active shooter, you know, is, is, is almost active shootings almost seven years ago, you know, these things atrophy here in the United States, we're able to practice them. So one, one thing that, that I'm looking at is exactly what you said, University of Virginia is what were the notification protocols where, you know, here in the United States, we are now used to these colleges and universities coming out with these tweets saying, you know, lockdown or run. Uh, we're not hearing much of that. So response and communication are often things that can save people's lives because they know what's going on and they're able either in the, in the best case scenario to run um, or hide. Uh, and, you know, I'm, we're obviously also curious about what kind of gun he had. If it was not, um, if it was, say, a handgun, that means he had a lot of time to kill that many people. And that means that the response capabilities uh, uh, were, were not consistent with what we hope for here in the United States, although we've seen uh, bad examples here as well. Yeah, we're still looking for some of that information. What do you think investigators yeah. are, are looking for at this uh, moment, considering that we've also learned that the alleged shooter may be linked to other killings, certainly including that of yeah. his own father? That, that's exactly right. So the father thing is going to be relevant if he killed his father earlier in the day. And then what was the motivation for him going to the school and being kicked out? Was he failing out? Uh, and other issues like that. So that is what they're, they're looking at the nexus. And this, as compared to when I was on this morning, when you didn't know if he had a relationship, uh, with the university. Now that we know that he did, uh, it's going to look to what was ha what was his experience there and what did others around know about him. All right, Juliet, thank you so much for this. We appreciate thank it. You. Next, see what happens when the Queen of Christmas meets one of her biggest fans at the White House. Tonight, let's end on a high note. The Queen of Christmas spreading the holiday cheer all the way to the nation's capital. Hello, Mariah. How are you? Hello, sir. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. I just want you to know. Oh, we love it. Come on. Thank Mariah Carey visiting the White House with her 12-year-old twins, by the way, to meet President Biden and Vice President Harris, a visit that included everything from viewing the Oval Office to admiring the festive decor. And this comes as Carey's classic Christmas medley, All I Want for Christmas, returns to number one on the Billboard Hot 100, right, right where it belongs, knocking out Brenda Lee's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree after it made it there this year for the first time, 65 years after its release. And thank you so much for joining us. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillip starts now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.